Welcome to Myth versus Craft. Welcome to episode 14 of Myth vs. Craft. My guest today is guitarist and singer J.D. Simo. He started playing guitar when he was only five years old, and he was playing professionally by age nine. He moved to Nashville at 21, and through hard work, perseverance, and talent, he earned a coveted spot in Don Kelly's band. J.D. only got better over the next five years, spending thousands of hours on stage and working as a session musician. In 2010, he co-founded the power trio Simo. Six years later, they're hitting their stride, and their latest album, Let Love Show the Way, just charted at number four on the Billboard Blues chart. Simo tours nonstop, and I highly encourage you to go see them if they play near you. I'll be going to their show here in Austin this Thursday. Before we start, I apologize that the quality of our phone call was spotty at best, but I think you'll agree that the content JD shared more than makes up for it. Let's start by listening to snippets from three of Simo's songs. The first two songs are from Let Love Show the Way, and the third one is from Simo's live EP recorded in Nashville last year. I 
Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate you being so kind. My pleasure. I read that you were about five years old when both the Blues Brothers and Elvis Presley made quite an impression on you, and you started playing guitar, I think harmonica first and guitar shortly after. Having started so young, what role did music and the guitar in general play in your childhood? Oh, well, it dominated it, you know. I fell in love with it so young that it was it was the all-consuming hobby, interest, everything that had to do with music was what I was into, whether it was the movies I watched or the books I read or being obsessed with vinyl, you know, and learning to play, you know, it was just an all-consuming obsession. It's it's hard to kind of, because because it was a while ago and so much has happened since then, it's hard for me to, to, to really remember complete, completely truthfully, but you know, I really, there was nothing before music that I can remember. I read that you even got your mom, you grew up in Chicago and you got your mom to take you down to, uh, to see chess records, which at the time was already shuttered, but you just wanted to go see it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember it. Wow. It was, you know, now that the whole city, part of, one of the reasons why the Blues Brother movie has been, been such a lasting thing to me is, is it's such a beautiful kind of love letter to that city. You know, it captures the essence and what it looked like the Chicago that I grew up in and that Chicago is gone now. You know, it's, you know, the gentrification of the city has changed the way it looks and feels quite a bit, but the city that I grew up in was, was very much the city that's portrayed in that movie. And yeah, you know, chess down there on Michigan Avenue, you know, that was not necessarily a desirable part of town when I was a little boy. At the time, it was a boarded, you know, it was a boarded up building, but I just had to see it. You know, since I've been back, now that they've opened it and cleaned it up and all that, I've been back several times, and it's, it's an amazing place. It's a great place to grow up. You know, it definitely had a huge influence and impact on me. And the older I, older I got, the more I realized how special, you know, it was to grow up there. Were there any other musicians in your family? No, not at all. They're all, uh, they're all athletes. I understand that by age 13, you'd been playing for a while now, and you got a chance to play with Dick Dale. By age 15, you recorded your first EP. At what point did it become clear to you and in, in your family that this was all extraordinary, that this wasn't you know, something that most kids your age had experienced or were able to do at that age? Did you realize that you had something special by that point? Well, yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that I felt like I was anything special. I was just always very strange, you know, in school and stuff like that, you know, because, you know, even in first, second, third grade, you know, I was playing, you know, and I was performing in a very limited capacity when you're that young. But I mean, I was just always the strange guy. So it really didn't, <laughs> does that make sense? Like it didn't really translate into extraordinary necessarily. It just, it just, I was the strange kid who, who did this, you know, it was an oddity. That makes sense. I had uh, Pete Thorne on the show last yeah, week. Yeah, I, lo I love Pete, man. Yeah, and he was he was great. And we were talking a little about how climate, right? He he was uh, raised in Edmonton, Canada, and we talked about how the climate can oftentimes influence people, and and dreary, cold, gloomy weather <laughs> might encourage people to stay indoors, right, and play. And he brought up that he, uh, you know, he played with Chris Cornell for a while, and that right. he had been talking to Chris Cornell. And that Chris had a, a another theory that you just touched on, which was that it's the kids who who perhaps are a little different, who aren't as extroverted, who don't perhaps excel at sports or or have other things going on, that that as well seems to be a, a key ingredient, or if not an ingredient, there's a pattern there that many of those kids end up also finding something, uh, and it might be a musical instrument, and spending a ton of time on it, and and that many of your fellow musicians might have been had a similar experience growing up. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Because like like a good athlete, you have to like have total immersion in it, you know. And it's twofold. It's one is the the athletic side of playing an instrument that you know there's muscle memory involved, there's motor skills involved, all that kind of stuff that takes years and years to kind of develop, really. But then there's like the all-consuming love of music that you become like a music nerd, you know, where you 
you're obsessed with records and you listen to records front to back and scour the liner notes and read about who produced it and where it was recorded. And then, you know, you start recognizing who's, you know, like session musicians and, oh, you know, this cat played on this record and this record that I like and, you know, right. all that kind of stuff. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's all very, very common as you get older and you become, you know, an adult, you know, music maker, as it were. And those are usually traits that happen fairly young when, you know, before you have any preconceived notion of who or what you, you are supposed to be, you know, like that's the other thing that I find fascinating about other guys who started playing music or wanting to perform or whatever. When you're a little kid, you don't have insecurities yet. You know, you develop those like through your teenage years, really, you know. So when you're real young like that, it's very pure what you love is what you love and you don't really have a preconceived notion of wanting approval of others. You know what I mean? Like you, right. you just do it because that's what you want to do. You're a kid. And I think that really helps in a lot of cases of other people I've come across in the business that you have that kind of pure love of being a music geek that never goes away because it formed so far before any of the other crap that life kind of piles onto your psychosis later on you know what i mean that it's like it's always there for sure and i think of uh i guess over time like back in the day when i was a kid i started playing guitar kind of late i must have been like 12 or 13 over time i've come to realize how many great guitar players started so young um josh smith um i believe got his first guitar at age three there's mm -hmm. Derek Trucks, there's Joe Bonamassa, there's all these, you know, call them child prodigies that started so, so young. And it blows my mind that not only that, that they were that good at that age, but that at that age, they were able to, to focus and latch on to something so special and be so passionate and dedicated about it. So, so hats off, man. It's really impressive. Well, thanks, man. How old were you when you moved to Arizona and what took you there? Oh, I was uh, 13 and uh, it was my father wanting to retire and he wanted to leave Chicago and he wanted to go to a, a warmer climate, you know, the family uprooted and moved, moved out to Arizona. Had you been playing much uh, with other people in Chicago before you moved? Yeah, sure. I was, it was, I mean, I started playing professionally when I was like eight and nine years old, like making money, but it was when you're that young, it's not it's kind of more, uh, you know, I would go sit in with people or I'd go do like, I don't know, like corporate little things where it would be like the cute kid who's going to get up and perform, that kind of shit. But it was really, when once we moved to Arizona, there just was so little to do that that's when I started putting bands together and actually started playing at bars for real. Right in that 12, 13 range is when that all started. And then that never really stopped, you know, since then. I've always played live. What kind of music were you playing with those bands? It was mostly blues-oriented, but it was um, that early. I mean, it's tough for me to completely remember. I mean, I, I have patchy memories of some of it. It, it was mostly blues-related, but, you know, there's some old, you know, Rolling Stones and stuff like that. Were you playing with older kids, or did you... No, I was playing with adults. I never, I never had anyone in my peer group that played. I, and that goes back to you know, when I was five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old growing up in Chicago. And then when I when I moved out to uh Phoenix, you know, I never had another kid in my peer group that played. And that's something that I've not met Derek yet, so Derek I haven't had a chance to talk to Derek about it. But Bonamoss and I are really, really good friends and he's a bit older than I am, but we still relate to each other because we're still somewhat in the you know, I'm I'm a little bit under his generation, but we we were talking about how, you know, like my generation and I think his and Derek's generation, it really kind of skipped us. Like now, traveling around playing, there's, I see, I mean, you know, we just, we played in Atlanta last night and case in point, there was the, these group of, of young guys who were like seniors in high school that had bands and they were telling me about their band and telling me, you know, that they play the kind of music that I play, you know, and all that. And I didn't have that. You know, I never had a peer group that was my age that was into what I was into and played. So I always had to seek out older musicians. And I know Joe had to do the same. And 
like I said, I haven't met Derek yet, but I think uh, I, from what I've heard of things, I think he had to do the same thing too. And that's a really interesting thing that like our generation, it kind of skipped us, you know, and we were, we were all the stranger. <laughs> and spending so much time around, uh, around adults, right. And having those interactions, did you feel odd? Like going back to school or going back to, to hang out with kids who were your age, that it just feel weird? Yeah, I did actually, because I felt very much kind of like I knew what I wanted to do and I was doing everything I could to already kind of try and do it. And that notion as well was really, really freaking foreign to 12 year olds, 13 year olds, obviously. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah, it was, it was strange because all I wanted to do was get to where I was wanting to get to, you know, <laughs> and, uh, which made me a horrible student, <laughs> you know. Because I, I really, you know, by the time I was, you know, especially by the time I was 14 and then when I was 15, when I finally did drop out of school, I mean, I was a horrible student because in my mind, it was like, I know what I'm doing. I know what I want to do. And this is a waste of my time. You know, I want to be out becoming a better musician because I know I got a long way to go. And so, so yeah, it made it, it only made it harder for me to relate to people my own age, you know, but I have good friends too. I mean, but yeah, in general, yeah, absolutely. I believe you were about 21 when you moved to Nashville. Mm -hmm. Given the, the success attention and, and the, just the track record, right? The number of years for which you had been playing up until that point, were you pretty confident when you first arrived to Nashville? Yeah. And I think you kind of have to be, otherwise you're not going to move to a place that's going to kick your ass, you know? You know what I mean? You kind of have to have a bit of a stiff upper lip, you know, to kind of jump into a real aggressive talent pool and think that you're going to survive it. You know what I mean? So, yeah, at the time I was, but that quickly faded. <laughs> what was that first year like? It was really, really rough. I mean, it was probably no rougher than anyone else who, you know, tries to establish himself in a place like that. You know, Nashville... Uh, Nashville, New York, Los Angeles, Austin, where you're, where you're at. I mean, any place that has, you know, exorbitant amount of talent and only so much work. It was, it was really tough. You know, I, 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 I didn't have any money. I didn't have anything going for me. I didn't know anybody. Nobody, nobody knew or cared who I thought I was at the time, obviously. But that's what's good for you because there comes a point, and I think part of it just has to do with growing up. Like there comes a part point where you have to realize that, you know, the world owes you nothing and the world is full of talented people. And, you know, what makes you, what makes you different, better, more deserving, you know, of an opportunity than any of these other thousands or millions of people, whatever, you know, and, you know, it, it, hopefully it, it'll either scare you to death and then you kind of pack up and go home or you, decide that you're going to, you're going to step up and you're going to try and, you're going to try and grow and you're going to try and really, 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 really work hard to try and get somewhere. And those are the ones that tend to survive. I heard a story that you were pretty close to that edge, that you, that you oh, were yeah. pretty much ready to leave Nashville and you went out to play on a street corner and yeah. Don Kelly's bass player happened to see you there. He introduced yeah. you to Don. What happened next? Well, Don is a real interesting guy. Um, he's really got a very gruff, hard, you know, kind of mentality. He's very intimidating. And so at first he ignored me and then he finally took pity on me. And it took the better part of the evening to kind of talk him into letting me try out, as it were. And so he told me to come back on that Sunday. And I believe this was a Wednesday or a Thursday or something like that. And he said, well, come back on Sunday night when there's not as many people here and bring your guitar and I'll get you up and we'll see what, we'll see how good you are. You know? I had a couple of days to really, really work hard because I'd never played that stuff. You know? I'd never played traditional country music, let alone like grass at 40 million miles an hour and all that. You know, like I'd never, I'd never done it. I liked it and I, I admired it, but I'd, I'd never really done it. So I had my work cut out for me and I came back and I, I came back on that Sunday and he got me up and I mean, I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I mean, I did the best I could. I really, really tried hard, but he just kept throwing difficult thing after difficult thing at me, just seeing if, seeing how I would handle it. And, you know, he called me a couple of days later and asked me if I'd come, if I could come down and play. And then it was, 
very sporadic at first. You know, he used me for a night and then he'd say, hey, can you play tomorrow night? You know, and that kind of thing where I didn't really know where I stood with him. That lasted for months and months and months. And then finally, you know, he, he offered me the the job full time. But that was a long way down the road. That was like six, seven, eight months later. But I guess it was enough of a lifeline, you know, asking you to sit in here and there was enough of a lifeline for you to stay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I worked for it. And I worked for it, man. You know, I, I worked really, really hard. How did you feel that first Sunday night, having had three, four days to prepare to play stuff that is difficult and you hadn't played before? How did you feel that Sunday night after you played with him? Oh, man, I was so, I was just petrified stiff, man, you know. I mean, I had I had no idea how it really went, you know. Like, I didn't necessarily feel like I did a shitty job, but I, I felt like I knew I had done the best I could do, but I had no idea if I had done well enough, you know what I mean? I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was rough, you know. I'd never really dealt with that kind of on-the-spot pressure. And it certainly didn't help that the place was packed, too. Like, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't empty. And the guitar player that was playing with him that night was this guy, Chris Casella, who lives in Chicago now, who's, who's a marvelous, marvelous guitar player. So it didn't help that he was literally, like, sitting right there, you know, the whole time as well. I mean, the whole, but... But that's the, the good thing about that gig, you know, is like, you, you, you know, not only do you get forced to play difficult music and it turns you, as my band mates kind of made fun of me last night about it, like it turns you into a machine, you know, because you do it four hours a night for four or five days a week on and on and on with no break. And, you know, it really just, it just makes you into Superman, you know. But also, it, learned, it teaches you how to deal with stress and teaches you how to deal with stressful situations on a bandstand and how to deal with pressure and how to not let it overtake you. And all. There's a lot of stuff that I learned in that band, starting even from that first Sunday night. You just preempted my next two questions, which were you know, playing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. Mm-hmm. Did it wear you out or did it just make you better? And it sounds like it, it just made you stronger and better. Oh, yeah. No, you can't. That's the thing that, you know, I'm really grateful that on a daily basis now, you know, I see and talk to young players and you got to play, man. You got to get out and play in front of people. You know, you can't, you can't get what all our heroes had. You can't get close to attaining anything close to that if you don't have thousands, it's the 10,000 hour thing. You know, there's no way around it. Uh, and I don't care if you're successful. I mean, because there's successful bands and stuff like that that haven't got 10,000 hours. And I think it shows. <laughs> right. You know, there's no way around it. You have to be on a bandstand because you have, you can't learn any of that out of context or in a rehearsal room or having gone through something one time. You got to go through it thousands and thousands of times. The, uh, the, the unfortunate thing is, you know, in the old days, you know, in the, in, again, like going back to like, you know, heroes of mine. And not just necessarily guitar players, but just musicians in general. You know, live music used to be a part of our culture. It used to be that every bowling alley, every holiday inn, you know, whatever, had a house band that played five hours, six hours a night. That's where you hone yourself. You, that's where you get good. And, you know, it's really tough in the modern climate, you know, if you're a young kid and you have a band and you're going to play a half hour set maybe twice a month. The amount of that that you have to do to really kind of develop who you really are is going to take an eternity, you know? And so I don't really have an answer for that, but I just, I stress all the time how important it is because it, it really, that's what makes you a good musician, I think, you know? And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that I am one. I'm saying that the people that I admire, that's what they went through, you know, whether you're talking about the Beatles or John Coltrane or, or, or Ella Fitzgerald or Elvis Presley, or they all had their, their grooming period where they work where they worked their ass off in front of the audiences and figured it out. I understand that once you started playing in Don's band, you started getting calls to do session work. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about doing session work at that time? Uh, I loved it because it, it was a challenging thing and again getting back to like when I was younger as a little boy with you know being a music nerd with my record, you know, looking on records and seeing, oh, there's this guy Jim Gordon who's on Pet Sound, and he's 
playing drums for Mad Dogs and Englishmen, and he's playing drums for Linda Ronstadt. And you know what I mean? Like, who is this guy, Jim Gore? You know what I mean? Like, it appealed to me greatly. That's the other good thing about, you know, at least when I was in that band, that producers and people from the publishing companies and stuff like that would go see Don's band to see who was playing with because they were, you know, because they're always looking to pinch, you know, some new young player. That's how they find new session guys. You know, they go around town and they, they find this guy that's really good, you know, and, it, you know, on whatever instrument. And then they, you know, usually, you know, the way I started was just playing on demos, you know, which was real low pressure. You know, it was demos and it was 50 bucks here, a hundred bucks there, whatever, you know, and it was just good to kind of learn how to do it, learn how to read charts. Then you'd start doing actual scale demos, or at least I did, you know, for publishing companies and stuff, which is really, really high pressure because, you know, you've got a three-hour session and they're going to want to at least get four, five, or six songs cut in those three hours. And you really got to, you have to have your shit together. You got to be, you got to know how to read. You got to know how to get sounds quick. You got to know how to make decisions quick. And you can't hold anybody up. If you hold people up, they get really, really angry at you, you know, whether it be engineers or other musicians too. And so that went for a while. And then, then I was really lucky, you know, guys like, you know, Paul Worley is a real notable producer in Nashville, big, big time Dixie Chicks and a bunch of other stuff. You know, he, he was like one of the first big producers that started using me on records, you know, but again, it's like a stair step thing. You know, you get, you do this, you do this well, and then this happens, and then you do that well, and then you get this. And, you know, it all was very a natural progression. Were you primarily being hired to play just a bunch of different styles to do what you were doing with Don, or to to play like like you and, and do the stuff stuff that's closer to what you do now? Oh no, no, it was all points in between. Every day was different. Every session was different. Um, I never knew what they were going to ask of me. You know, one session might be a mainstream commercial country record that Paul Worley was producing that, uh, you know, I'd be asked to do very slick stuff on or I, well, not with Paul. Paul's stuff was always much more organic, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, it would be anything and everything. I mean, it was all over the place. You know, I never knew what they were going to ask me to do. Did you enjoy that variety? You felt like it gave you a chance to expand your playing? Or, or did you ever feel like you really wanted to focus on what you enjoy doing? In the beginning, it was, a, it was a good challenge, and I enjoyed it. Over time, I got bored with it because so much of it day-to-day is exactly the same, especially the mainstream country stuff I was involved in, which was the majority of it, whether it be doing demos for the publishing companies or, or doing you know, records for major labels, all that stuff got to be just insanely the same every day where it was just, you know, the chord progressions or the type of licks they were wanting me to do or the type of hooks they were wanting me to come up with or whatever, you know, that got very mundane very, very quickly. But, you know, in the in the middle of that, you know, then I'd, I'd go play on something for Dan Arbach or uh, something he was producing or I'd go, there was other guys who would call me on occasion to play on like indie rock records or or stuff like that that you know i would get to have a little bit more fun with but again it happened gradually over time it was a several year period where it started good it was fun i was enjoying the challenge and figuring out how to do it well you know the whole thing with sessions is you know you if somebody gives you an opportunity to come and play for them somebody hires you it's like an audition, you know, and it's like you, if you do really well, then they're, then they're going to call you again. And so that whole thing makes you feel really good. It makes you feel accomplished and it, you know, it's good. It makes your ego feel good, all that stuff. And in the process, you, you know, you learn how to record, you learn how records are made. And, you know, for me, it was, you know, I was constantly, you know, talking to the engineers and asking about, you know, asking questions to anyone and everyone I could, even my fellow musicians you know why'd you do that why do you do that this way you know all that kind of stuff because you you know the 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 whole concept of making records is one that i think is pretty overblown i think people in essence i think people make more out of it than it really is you know i mean to me recording is very simple but with technology and the quote unquote right way to do things it's overcomplicated 
Because really, the in my opinion, after having gone through, you know, several years of doing it every damn day, you know, the thing that in the end made the biggest difference is if the performance was good, nothing else really mattered. You know, if the performance was great, if everybody really clicked and it was really a good take, nothing else really mattered. Yet, I would constantly see them making big deals over things that I thought were not big deals, you know, in the end. So, you know, I was, I was learning a lot. I was learning a lot how, how to make records and also, you know, forming my own, own opinions of what I thought. If I was in charge, what would I do? You know what I mean? Like through that whole period. So it was incredibly helpful. Let's talk about Simo. Okay. I heard that you met your original bandmates at an impromptu jam around 2010. Yeah, that's true. At this point, were you already toying with the possibility of starting your own project? Yeah, yeah, I, I pretty much resolved that I didn't want to. I, I, I didn't want to be a session man really any longer, and I didn't want to go on the road with some act. Um, I mean, there was a couple acts that I toyed with wanting to go out with, but in the end, I decided I didn't want to do that either. And I knew I wanted to do something that I was involved in, but I didn't really know what yet. And so when I met my bandmates, it gave me my answer. <laughs> it was very organic. So that was the trigger. I mean, you were kind of thinking about it. You met the right people, and that convinced you to pursue it full time. That's right. That's correct. Because it was it was just so obvious to me that okay, well, this is what I've been this is what I've been waiting for right here. This kind of opportunity to do this, and this is what I would like to do. You know, and it just was it was very easy. It was easy notion to have, but then the following through with it was much more difficult. <laughs> I figure you must have felt ready uh, from a musical standpoint. Did you also feel prepared from a business standpoint? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, I'd gone from literally having nothing, literally nothing, you know, monetarily, to over those several years, a nice house with a mortgage and a life, you know, an adult financial life you know, as a musician that I never really thought about or knew existed really. So the whole thought of essentially kind of throwing that all away to gamble on something was extremely scary. That was difficult. But in the end, we all jumped in with both feet and we're still here, you know, thank God. And it's not always the case though. And it's been a rough, you know, it's been a really long five, six years to get to the point that we're at right now, where now things are, you know, finally starting to work. It seems like you have a lot of momentum. You've released two albums, an EP, a single, you're touring nonstop, you've gotten to collaborate and play shows with some really great acts. How do you feel things are going? Do you think like you're getting over the hump or getting where you want to be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see it every night now these days, you know, I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, it's a slow build, but Having been through the last several years, you know, the support that we've garnered, especially over the last year and really just the last several months because of the response of this new record. And it's been great. I mean, you know, to, to actually chart on Billboard yesterday was a huge thing. For, I saw that. For Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And <laughs> the support of all the press and Rolling Stone. I mean, it's just been really great, you know, and we've worked really, really hard and we're trying to do our best with the opportunities that are given, which really just translates to you just have to do your best every night, you know, which in one sense is difficult, but in the other sense, it's probably the easiest thing to do because that's what we love to do. So you get up right. and you play well. Your record label is part of a mascot label group. Mm -hmm. in, in a day and age when some artists opt to bypass a label entirely, what made you decide to sign with them? What made you think that they were the, the right fit for you? Really, it just comes down to the relationship. Founder and president of the entire Ascot Label Group is a guy named Ed Van Giel, who is just so completely and utterly committed to the group and is such a good, become a very good, close personal friend of mine and a, and a major, major cheerleader that... We have an understanding between the two of us where we want to see this grow to. And he knows that I'm willing to work as hard as I can possibly work if he'll do the same. And so far, it's been 
an incredible relationship. The staff, both here in North America and also over in Europe, have been amazing. All of their press people have been amazing. I really did not foresee any radio stations liking what we do. And the fact that there are that there are stations as well as NPR here in America that have actually added Long May Sale to their playlist is something I didn't foresee happening, really. And I owe a lot of that to the label support. I'm very grateful to them. You mentioned having a joint vision about where you do want to be. What would be your dream scenario for Simo? Where, where do you want to be? There's not a specific number or something. It just really is the ability to be on solvent financial ground where we can just where we can continue to do what we're doing, and it's that simple. Right. That could translate into you know playing to a few hundred people a night. It could translate to playing in front of a few thousand people a night, or any point in between. And in my mind, it really doesn't matter to me. You know, I just it doesn't take all that much for you to be actually standing on solid ground. But it's hell of a lot of work to kind of get to that. The other misconception that exists is that, you know, it's very easy to kind of look at people that are successful and go, well, why can't I be where they are? You know, you don't know how hard they work to get there. You know what I mean? Like it's, right. it, it takes probably more commitment, I think, than most people, even that are musicians or in the music business, are willing to kind of recognize, I think, at least. You know, because they don't want to believe it. <laughs> right. I mean, there's the, the myth of the overnight success, and be it in, in, in anything, really, in, in music, uh, business, whatever it might be. Uh, I think for the most part, is just that a myth, right? You don't know everything that they poured into it before you they came into your consciousness and, and they appear to be an overnight success. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. The notion that I think is probably the most truthful one I can say on the subject is you can never know another person's story you know what i mean like you 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 know and that's why it's so such a bad idea to ever compare what you do or who you are to someone else because you have no way of knowing just like someone else has no way of knowing your story and what you've been through. you know but that's human nature i mean we're we're by nature we're very insecure beings you know and we're very fragile but it takes a bit of constitution i think to kind of to kind of get to a point where you you don't go there you know, you just focus on what you're doing and what direction you're headed. Let's talk about songwriting. At what age did you start writing your own material? Oh, the first song I ever wrote, I was probably seven or eight, I think. It was this horrible song called One More Day. Terrible song. Have you found over time uh, that there's a set writing process that works for you? Do songs tend to come to you in the same way or does it happen in all sorts of ways? Well, they happen in all sorts of ways, but for me, I I don't, uh, I tried for a while when I was doing a lot of session stuff. I obviously got to know a ton of really great songwriters, and uh, I tried the writing by appointment thing, and uh, I can't do that. It doesn't work for me. I, I respect people that can do it and do it successfully because it takes the discipline and a, a craft, but... To me, you know, what works for me is I write when I, when I feel like it, when something strikes me. And sometimes that can be months, you know, it can be months, you know, between when I actually write something. And then there could be a spell of a few days where I write a bunch of stuff. I mean, it, it just it comes in waves, I think, for me. How does songwriting work within Simo? Well, it works two different ways. One is that I actually will bring in something that I've written and then we as a group will kind of make it into what it's supposed to be made into. Or we write a lot as a group where, you know, we, we get together all the time when we're off the road. We're together a lot and we get together and jam and improvise and we, through doing that, end up finding riffs, chord progressions, things that seem worthy of making them into a song and we'll kind of form you know the basic outline of what the song is structurally and then i'll take it and i'll write the words to it and that's generally the two ways that we that we write and we do that more often than not we write far more songs in that method than me bringing songs in that i've written it's uh just because so many ideas are generated between the three of us when we play 
we just really don't have the time to kind of <laughs> weed through everything that we might stumble upon on a daily basis. Does writing lyrics come easily to you? Yeah, usually. But again, I don't force it. Like, you know, there can be, there's pieces of music that can sit around for months and months and I won't know what to write about over a said structure. And then I'll figure out what it's supposed to be about. And then I'll usually write it really quick. And I usually don't question it. You know, there's friends of mine that kind of pour over them and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite lyrics over and over again. I've tried doing that. It, they, they seem to get worse when I do that. You know, so I tend to kind of let it kind of come out real quickly. And unless there's something that I'm really not happy with, you know, it's generally kind of everything kind of comes out in one swooping motion. I've spoken with several guitar players who don't feel nearly as confident about their voice as they do about their guitar playing. Uh, for example, Matt Schofield came on the show and he talked about how he's gotten to a point where he's pretty happy with his guitar playing, but when it comes to, to singing, he feels like he's 10 years behind. And it's just something that he realized he had to do, but it's something that he's still not yet fully comfortable with. I think you sing very well. How do you feel about your singing? Oh, I'm very comfortable now. Taken a long time. I definitely can understand the sentiment that Matt is conveying there. But I feel very comfortable now. At what age did you start? How long did it take you to get there? I've been singing my whole life since I was a little boy. But when the band formed originally, that's when I really started to take it seriously. And it's been a very gradual thing, but, you know, I've definitely found you know, a way to express myself through it and have gotten to a point where I legitimately really enjoy it. I enjoy being able to express myself in both ways as a guitarist and as a vocalist. I enjoy both of them. It's getting more and more. E I mean, at the end of the day, I'll always be a guitarist. I'll always be content being the guitarist, but I've gotten much more to somewhat of an even footing where I enjoy both. And I've learned, learned to just use it for what it is because you know i think that the hardest thing with your voice is you you have to like on your instrument it is what it's going to be and all you can kind of do is refine it the notion being that you sound the way you sound you know and i think the sooner you kind of embrace that and start to kind of try and find ways to use it to express to truly express you know that's when the fun really starts to happen and so with me, it's fun on a nightly basis because I kind of try and apply the same approach that I put on my instrument to singing, which is that every night I try and do different. I try and play different every night, and I try and sing different every night. And just like on guitar, some nights I'll really have a good night, <clears throat> and then other nights I might not be connecting as well. The same thing with your voice, you know. Some nights your voice... You might be limited in what you can do for a myriad of reasons. And so you kind of work within what you have to work with that evening, the same as you would on your, on your guitar. And then some nights your voice feels really good and you can, you can almost do no wrong, you know? And so it's fun. I enjoy it. Over time, have you gotten more or less self-critical of your own performances? Oh, I don't think I'll ever not be self-critical. And I think that's a really important thing for a musician. I don't think it should ever rob you of your joy, if that makes any sense, which is very easy, which is very easy to do. But I think that, you know, if you show me a person who isn't self-critical, you're probably going to show me someone who isn't very good <laughs> at what they do. You know, I think you, I think you, you have to be striving that being self-critical is kind of the fuel to progress and you have to constantly be kind of looking at the things that you're not as great at to, to want to get better at those. And if you're not self-critical, you're not going to do that. And therefore you're not going to, you're probably not going to grow. But much like anything, you have to, you know, everything has to be in balance. And, you know, I certainly have been guilty as many people as being so self-critical that there's no fun in it anymore because all I'm doing is picking myself apart and I'm not allowing myself to make music that, you know, in the end, it's supposed to be enjoyable, enjoyable to make, enjoyable to listen to. You know, I think about, you know, obviously, Glenn Fry just passed away and has some really good friends that have worked in and around the Eagles. You know, and I think that's a very common, 
kind of uh, a uh, criticism, if you will, that, you know, Henley in particular, but Henley and Fry as a team, you know, would kind of suck a lot of the fun out of making music because they were so critical of everything and wanted everything so perfect. I definitely get everything you're saying. What I find really interesting is that it seems like sometimes there's not a direct correlation between your assessment of how a night went or how you're playing or how your singing was and how the audience perceived it. I've had guests, uh, I remember Ian Moore talking about how one way in which he managed to tone down the degree to which he would be self-critical and evaluate every performance after the fact was when he began to realize that there were nights that he thought he had a real off night and someone would come up or the people in the audience would come up after the show and tell him that he was on fire and it was incredible. And then the opposite would happen. Nights that he thought went pretty well, you know, perhaps didn't didn't go as, as well or he didn't connect as much with the audience. Have you found that to be the case in your experience? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's always, you know, that's, that's a very common, that's a very common thing, you know. Now, obviously, a person is going to have, like, certain people in their life that they trust their opinion more than others, obviously, right? I think that the truth of what is truly a good night and what is truly a bad night is there's probably a pretty wide-ranging gray area because I have in the process of recording many times I've played a take of something that I thought I sounded like shit and then I heard the tape back and it was great the thing that I think causes that to happen is when you're a musician if you're in your own head when you're playing you're not hearing necessarily what you're playing you're hearing what is in your head that you want to be playing Okay, and you're not hearing reality. All you're hearing is the stuff you're not playing, and that's another thing that recording has helped me to understand. So I don't beat myself up so much when I feel like I've had a bad night, because I know the truth. It's a pretty wide-ranging gap it can be, and you know, at the end of the day, I mean, it's like you can feel good about what you did. But really what matters is if people enjoyed what you did in the end, which is what, you know, Ian is saying and what you're, you know, that notion. So, you know, as long as people are enjoying themselves and you're trying, I guess what I'm saying is the element is you have to be trying to do a good job. If you just think you're God's gift and, and you, and, and, and you think everything you do is great, then that's not okay. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like you, you know, cause, and it's also not true. And usually, the people with the with the least amount of ability are usually the ones that are the most puffed up. You know, you can <laughs> you know, you can usually tell the it's funny, man, you know, because again, like in the session world, you know, I got to work with just ridiculous musicians. I mean, you know, anyone from Matt Chamberlain to Sean Pelton and Will Lee and Michael Rhodes and you know, all these ridiculous musicians and you know, the ones that were the best were usually the ones that were the chillest and the most groovy. And then you get around people that are really puffed up or really, you know, whatever, and then you hear them play and you're like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Switching gears, you're very well known for loving vintage instruments and yeah. being very meticulous about your sound. I think this shows, right? You sound great. Well, thank you. But part of me wonders if it's possible to quantify how much of that is, is just you your hands, your phrasing, uh, you know, all these thousands and thousands of hours that you've put into it, and how much of it is the equipment you've selected and set up so carefully. I've seen videos of you playing through a variety of equipment, uh, including some very nice modern rigs like uh, a Collings i35LC or a, a Reinhardt Sentinel, which I think is a great amp. Yeah. I know you hear the difference when you play some of this modern equipment and when you play some of your favorite vintage gear, do you think your audience would hear the difference as well? Or is it more so a case that you hear it so it inspires you and it, and it inspires you to perform better or differently? And it's this enhanced performance that your audience hears. It's probably the latter. I think in the end, I think it's kind of, you know, like a lot of times people use like the golf analogy that like, you know, if you put a really good club in the hand of a good player you know, that 0.002% can make a difference, you know, right. in the way that the person performs. So I, I think that's definitely 
a major part of it is that, you know, for me, it's the fact that I've gotten the opportunity to play through just ridiculously, you know, valuable, incredible equipment in the exposure I've had to it has been pretty big. It's an amazing thing, but it's absolutely, I don't think, necessary. If I didn't have it, I could still, I could, you know, it's not like it's, I've lost my mojo, you know, like I can't, <laughs> it's, it's not imperative, but it's, it's preferable, put it that way, you know, especially if you, if you're an improvising musician, you're so much more susceptible to everything because everything you hear and feel is going to influence what you play and how you play, you know? So I think it's probably not as important if you're kind of playing pop music or stuff that's more parts relative where you're kind of interpreting very similar things night after night. But if you're improvising and every night's kind of a blank canvas for you to paint on, it's important. Having said that though, could the audience tell? Some probably could, some probably wouldn't. You can definitely, when a guitar or something is really, really good and you hear it side by side with something that isn't, you know, it is noticeable. The audience might not understand what it is that they're hearing necessarily. They might not be able to articulate it like, oh, wow, that instrument really sounds good. But I do think it does make it. Does that make sense? Like, I think it's somewhere in between. Right, where the audience might tell that it's, it just doesn't sound as good or, or, or it's not as great, but they can't pinpoint why. Exactly, yeah, I think. But it definitely, I mean, from the inspiration standpoint, standing on stage, you know, it does make a big difference, I think. That makes a lot of sense. J.D., I really appreciate your time. I've enjoyed our conversation. I uh, am really grateful that you came on the show, and I look forward to, uh, to watching you play when you come to Austin. Well, man, I'm really looking forward to it, and uh, I really appreciate you having me and taking the time yourself. You know, I really enjoyed speaking with you, man. Thank you. JD, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. God bless. Thank you for listening. Until next time.